Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is writer, walker, and psychoanalyst Meredith Fuller, who talks about the physical and spiritual experience of walking the historic European pilgrimage route, the Camino de Santiago. There's a embodiment, which to me is the essence of what becomes the mystical experience may sound paradoxical, but the more I think you have to be in your body and be present and, and in nature, something happens with your mind-body connection. And I would call that joy, which doesn't mean there isn't discomfort. I've never had eight days of such sustained joy. Meredith Fuller is a psychologist, psychoanalyst, a nationally published poet, the author of the novel Quarry, and mother and grandmother. With her husband, Jim Lloyton, Fuller recently returned from walking a part of the pilgrimage route, the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, which Pope Alexander VI declared to be one of the three great pilgrimages of Christendom. Meredith Fuller, welcome to Lives. Thank you. It's great to be here one of the three great pilgrimages of Christendom. Would you be able to set the stage for us just a little bit about the background to this pilgrimage route? Yes, I'll try to do that. There are a lot of different stories. Um, St. James was, of course, one of the early disciples known to be close to Jesus and undoubtedly an historical figure. And the first martyr, um, he was beheaded in Palestine, um, how could his body, a site of a pilgrimage, have ended up in northwestern Spain, Galicia? And so there's a, there are a lot of stories about that, but it's pretty definite that actually St. James's body is not in Galicia, but you are making a pilgrimage to the mythological site of where his body is. That's at least how I've read the evidence. But someone is buried in a tomb in Santiago de Compostela, and over time, various uh, bishops and hermits felt that it was where St. James was buried, would be the simplest way to put it. And a pilgrimage um, was set in motion. There's a lot of reason to believe that Christendom wanted the Muslims out of Spain, that they'd been fighting the caliphate. And so to have a site of um, holiness for Christians was, um, from a cynical point of view, a rather good way to bring people into that section of the country with a sense of fervor. And so, as I understand it, though, a lot of people walking the paths from all over the world, but obviously on the landmass of Europe, didn't really happen uh, very regularly until around the 10th century. Obviously, wars interrupted this. It wasn't always a safe thing to do. But over time, and very much so, since the 19th and 20th century, um, it became something that people did not only because they were devout Catholics, but because it was a really interesting thing to do. You could even say a fun thing to do. What surprised us, we are not Catholics. Um, uh, Jim and I are Buddhists, but I was raised a Christian, 
And I've hiked in the Alps with him. I've walked point to point with our children in this country. Um, Jim and I have walked in Brittany along the coast. There's just a very different feeling about walking the Chemin Saint-Jacques, as the French call it. And since we're in France, that's how I've referred to it as Le Chemin. Because I think it has been used for so long by so many people. People have been welcomed and fed and housed for so long. Um, from a mystical point of view, which I actually hold, I think presences and actions change places and, and that you can feel that in some way, even if you're not quite sure how. Um, and then at a more practical level, it's just um, many routes crossing France are well signed. And um, there are a lot of great places to stay and eat great local food and drink great local stuff. Would you give us a sense of where is the pilgrimage, as in the roots of it? and the geography of the place, and some sense of scale. You didn't walk the entire route, so I know Mm -hmm. it's a massive undertaking. So I'm just curious about those aspects. Right. I I can't tell you how long it would be, how many miles it would be, if, say, one of the furthest um, places you could start from, say, would be Scotland, and you cross the whole of the UK, you would then get a boat, you would come to the north of France, you would walk all down France, um, do, you would pretty much be going... Uh, due south, a teeny bit west maybe, and then you would go over the Pyrenees, and then you would go um, west straight out to Finisterre of Galicia, northwestern Spain. But since people came, um, devout people came from Italy, from Switzerland, from Russia, um, Eastern Europe, and France and Italy and so on, and Spain itself, of course, people are coming from within Spain, and then they're coming north mostly. But anyway, most of the routes actually cross France if you're coming from the north or if you're coming from the east. And so you have, uh, like the shape of a scallop shell, where many lines come together at the bottom of the shell, that is really what it looks like. That's a very simple way to understand it, that there are all these converging routes all across France. Some people will do the whole route. We met one man who started in French Geneva, and he was going to take a couple of months to to walk the entire thing. But most people do it in sections, and some of the paths are more in more rugged terrain, more mountainous terrain than others. And um, all of it will have some profile. And then to go over the Pyrenees, the reason that place is a place of convergence is because it is a part of the Pyrenees that is not too high and it's closer to the shore along which you'll be going out to Finisterre. Before you started and then during the walk, what were the physical aspects of you know, undertaking this? Sure. I think many people were way too impressed by what we did. And by that I mean, I think unless you have a disability that makes walking painful or dangerous for you, um, I think if you're just moderately fit, and upper body too, but not massively fit, just, just, you know, in decent shape, and you like to walk, and you get yourself some good shoes and a light pack, it's really not that daunting. You can find routes that are very pleasant. You can find routes that are flatter than others. Um, and so we ourselves, who in the past have done some marathons or have done some much more arduous, what I would really call hiking um, in the Alps, say, um, we knew since I'm 76 and Jim is 80 that we 
we're not going to want to do something massively challenging like that. And we just decided that we would just do some walks prior to getting to France that were longish, meaning about as long as we might go on a longer day, 15 miles max. And so that we just felt comfortable. Frankly, I wouldn't, I don't think you'd even need to do that because one of the things we learned in doing it is you can, you, if you stop and rest even 10 minutes um, and get up again, your feet and your body say, thank you, I'm ready to go again. So it's not like some flat out thing, you know, for Americans, especially, I think we have a goal, we're going to get there. If we're tired, just keep going because we want to just do it. We want to get there. And that's not a good idea. If you can, if you know how to read your body and your mind and say, I'm tired, I'm hot. And I want to, my feet are, are sore and just, you want to get off your feet for a while. It's really not some huge deal to do this. I would imagine that another feature for someone that hasn't embarked on this kind of expedition, as it were, this pilgrimage, that might seem intimidating, might be language. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there was any aspect of needing to be able to speak French or Spanish and how you address that particular consideration. Well, I think there is a lot more fun to be had if you speak some French. And Jim and I, when walking in the Alps way back, and in walking in Brittany only three years ago, had much less French than we did this time. So for the last few years, we have worked at our French. But with Pimsleur program, which I think is awfully good, just you know, while I'm cooking or something or walking here, I'll listen to it with earbuds. And then also um, we eventually got a tutor online uh, who's become a friend, a young woman who speaks four languages and was born in Belgium, but lives in the Canary Islands. And there are a lot of tutors out there and they charge very little. Although I, I felt ill with anxiety when I started working with her, um, thinking, you know, self-consciously how on the spot I would feel. It actually makes you feel much more relaxed if you can actually spend some time finding somebody to speak French with. That said, what I what one of the more delightful experiences you have on the path is running in to strangers and ending up talking with strangers, either because you're resting in the same place or you have a question for each other or you run into each other at the bar in the next town or what have you. And um, we met a father and son. The son was about 18 years old with his father, and they were um, Australians who had started in Puyon Valley, which is close to Paris, and we're going to walk all the way to Santiago in Spain. They really had very little French. I mean, just a few phrases, and they were having a whale of a time, so they were fine. They did not express frustration about that. So I think it's sort of what your comfort level is. That said, it was delightful this time to be able to actually have lengthy conversations, enough to talk about your kids, the, the walk, politics, um, farming in the area, what you wanted to eat. Um, it was fun. It was fun. So we were just talking about this book, The Art of Pilgrimage, The Seeker's Guide to Making Travel Sacred. And it's by Phil Cousineau with a forward by Houston Smith. And in the forward, there's this statement that to set out on a pilgrimage is to throw down a challenge to everyday life. To turn that into a question for you, why did you embark on what is a 
pilgrimage and not a hike. Yeah. You know, I think Jim and I were somewhat naive about how walking on this route would be become a pilgrimage for us. Um, in other words, our motivations were to a large degree, I must confess, um, that the food of the southwest of France we love, the wines of the southwest of France, we love to walk. Um, the routes looked lovely. Um, we do, the, I would say the closest we had to a shared self-conscious sense of pilgrimage before we got there was that we enjoy long walks in the silence of nature and that maybe for us is the substratum of all sacred view is to is to be in nature and to be in your body and to be mindful and connected. So um, I think that statement that you just read is really beautiful in another way, which is that what we already did know but learned more this time is that walking point to point, a different walk every day, even if you know the map and you know where you're going, it's you don't know what it's going to be like. Anything from you could fall down to it could be rainy, the path could be rough, the signage could be poor, you might have a fight with your husband, you might, you know, um, it could be anything, really. Um, but so it does feel like every day is something very fresh and unexpected, and you have to pay attention. There's another quote that I wrote down, but actually this is something you described yourself as, a left-leaning Christian Buddhist, (laughs) (laughs) which is such an interesting way to describe yourself. It sets, I think, in some ways, the tone of what you were just describing. How do you think about the spiritual aspect for you of, of this endeavor? Yeah. To be truly honest, I think I can't fully articulate it. It's a feeling um, that arises when you're walking, especially if you keep walking. If you walk a lot of every day, we average 10 miles, sometimes 15, sometimes six. Um, And we walked every day for, for eight days, but then there were two more days at the end. I think that there's a sense of being present, which as a Buddhist, I have felt in meditational practices, and there is a tradition of walking meditation in Zen Buddhism and in Tibetan Buddhism. However, um, I think that with time, walking requires mindfulness. You could say that sitting meditation cultivates mindfulness, but the secret which most meditators know is that when you come back and realize you've been spaced out, you just at that moment wake up. You're not aware you're spaced out when you're spaced out is when you come back. When you're walking, you have to pay attention to where you put your foot. You have to pay attention to whether your pole is getting caught in a rabbit hole. You have to watch out for rocks. Um, You have to pay attention to the signage, what is called balisage in France. Um, There's a embodiment, which to me is the essence of what becomes the mystical experience, may sound paradoxical. But the more I think you have to be in your body and be present and and in nature, which you don't own, you know, in this larger world of weather and changing terrains and so on, I think something happens. Something happens with your mind-body connection. And I would call that joy. 
which doesn't mean there isn't discomfort. I've never had eight days of such sustained joy. Erling Kagi has a book called Walking One Step at a Time. And he said, your feet are your best friends. They tell you who you are. The feet are in dialogue with your eyes, nose, arms, torso, and with your emotions. Mm. And what you're describing feels to me very much about that mind-body connection. What perhaps, as you look back on that experience, what were some of the manifestations of you realizing or being in tune with your physical body and at the same time your emotional or psychological state and the dialogue between the two? Well, I would say that there's... um, just less room for thinking. Um, Multitasking is probably not a good idea when you're trying to move through space. And so the kindness of your, your, your feet, your body, is that it helps your mind um, be simpler. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in our mind that's only available when our mind is in a simpler, quieter, more receptive state. Um, one of our Buddhist teachers used to talk about the world as ordinary magic, and I've always loved that phrase, you know, that it's not about some big, wowy experience of enlightenment. Those things can happen to people. Sometimes marathoners describe it. But I think there's just something about the quiet um, steadiness of walking, the presence Um, that's made possible by that, that just puts you in a happy relationship to the world. You just are in your senses. One of the most remarkable days was when it was, by the way, a time of drought in Europe and certainly in the southwest of France. And, you know, you don't smell things as much when the air is dry. I know that from when I lived in Colorado. You have to get right up to the cherry tree in bloom to smell it because there's not an atmosphere to carry the scent. So it had been dry for five days of our walk. And then it wasn't that we couldn't smell some things, but then it rained. And one morning we walked and it was raining fairly heavily and in the afternoon on and off. And literally the, the earth started to breathe, the trees started to breathe, and the plants. And the, this, the air was filled with scent. And we were looking at each other in a state of wonder. So there's that availability to your senses, which is just wonderful. And when you're, when you're tired and hungry, things taste good. Um, when your feet are sore, to take off your shoes is heavenly. To listen to birds and quiet sounds of nature, yeah. Would you maybe reflect a little further about the nature that you encountered, the climate, the topography that you encountered as part of this experience? Mm-hmm. We, we took a train from Paris to Cahors, and then we took um, a taxi to a smaller village because we, although the chemin goes all through the part the train was on, we wanted to start in a small village in the southwest. And so we went to Moncouc, which is tiny. And the terrain, pretty much most of the walk is gently hilly, sometimes steeper, um, sometimes along the sides of roads, but generally not big roads. And often, if it is for a brief section along the road, there has been some sort of alley or um, path with trees on both sides of it. So there's some protection from the road. In fact, that's one of the most beautiful things is these long, long um, sections with trees on both sides. 
So there are canals, there are rivers. Um, uh, the towns are, rel- are really quite small. A, a really big um, city in that part of the world would be 20,000 or something like that. Um, we were never in any really big cities. At the end, um, Eos and Auch were the largest, the center of Legere's. So we walked through various French departements, and it was terrains of sunflower fields where the sunflowers were mostly past blooming and their heads were bowed. So it's gorgeous, sort of long stretches, um, vistas of sunflowers with their heads bowed, and it generally toward the southwest, right, in the direction we were going because that's the way sunflowers do. They turn toward the sun. And they were not yet harvested for their oil, but that was the crop. So we were walking through a very heavily agricultural part of France. So there were fields also including of corn. There were um, fields of wheat. There sorghum. There were fields of, of course, market vegetables. And um, then, of course, vineyards which was delightful. And the farther south we got, we were getting into more vineyards, including Armagnac vineyards. The grapes were still on the vines in some cases because they were intensifying and drying a little bit before they picked them. And what struck me was the scale. I think, I think it's delightful because the scale isn't quite as vast as a lot of the middle of Nebraska, which is very beautiful scale. But it's although it's intensive agriculture... It's such an ancient area for agriculture. And because the land is not perfectly flat, you just get little bits smaller fields. You know, the scale is a little bit different. So it's a very human scale. I'm wondering what else you encountered in terms of the natural world that surprised you. That's an important point because one of the things I want to emphasize is although you could think of this as a vacation in the most technical sense, that is something you're going to do when you have the time to do it uh, and you're free of work. But it didn't feel to me like your usual vacation where you you often, ironically, um, you know, you end up going somewhere and you feel disappointed because the hotel room isn't as good as it looked in the pictures and you feel like the world owes you something. You know, it's your vacation, the French call les vacances. But because you're walking through a landscape and where people are working, what they work at in towns and in the farmlands and so on, you're noticing the stresses that they're under. And um, global warming and um, ecological crisis is a part of our time, unless you're in unbelievable denial. And it's tr- you can't go anywhere on the planet anymore. You may be in a very beautiful place, but if you're aware, you will notice how that place is being stressed. And I also know that there, you know, if you read and so on, you you know that Europeans have been talking for some time about fewer birds, fewer wildlife, because even if the landscape is beautiful as a tilled landscape, that's not a wild landscape. We did walk through some sections of woods, but there's not va- there are not vast areas of wildness. And it was sort of shocking how quiet the air was, how few bird sounds, m- fewer than here where we are in Nebraska on the central flyway, you know. Um, and, and that was sad. And the earth was cracked and dry. It's a, cl- it's a clayey soil. And so if it gets wet, it really clings to the bottom of your shoes. But it's, it was really compacted. And I, we met a man, a French uh, local, who was out hunting with his hunting dogs and had a bit of conversation. What was he hunting and 
Well, he was hoping for pheasants, but he said, there's just, it's so hard, you know, there's just not, it's not much going on. The animals are, everything's stressed. The rivers were low. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's, that's what we noticed. We felt like we were walking through the reality of what it is to be living with climate change. What I'm thinking with what you're describing is an experience of sharpened senses, mm, mm-hmm. uh, an experience of sharpened experiences. I'm just wondering about those aspects yes. to just those periods when you weren't walking, maybe when you were eating or experiencing the right. sights or... Yeah, I mean, I think just as you suggest, there's the discomfort of if you really are slowed down and aware, you will be aware of the painful things as well as the beautiful things. So you're going to be aware of the stressed earth or the fact that the migration of birds now is also complicated by how this crisis of Africa, that kind of thing is just palpable there. But you also are, you know, you're, you get tired if you walk most of the day and your feet know it you and there were a few days of swollen ankles and feet which i normally think of as a phenomenon of sitting on a plane so that was interesting that told me how the heat and just the the walking was was stressing us out but i think there's something to been again the word simplicity comes to mind if you simplify and you are both hot and sweaty and tired and you are also more deliciously grateful for sitting down and drinking some water and eating some dates and some nuts or what have you. You know, sometimes we were foraging dropped fruit from trees, figs and things. So I, I think there's a, a way in which everything was heightened. And then, of course, when we would get to a village, you know, we, we began to have a sort of a, we had began to have a ritual of, you know, going to the town square, and every village has a town square. That's another thing of great interest to me is common civic spaces that are small and safe and everyone uses. And to just come into the square and take off your pack and put it on a chair and, you know, take off your shoes maybe, but certainly put your feet up on another chair and order a beer and just sit there and watch life go by. And the beer tastes so good and maybe order some food or go take a nap and then find a place to eat. And so they're just, the delights are simple. And frankly, I think that as human beings, when we get too far from that, we begin to feel much more uh, dissatisfied because what we think we need and the way the day ought to go becomes conceptual. Joining me today is Meredith Fuller. Fuller was previously a guest on this show on December 13th, 2017, when we talked about her then new novel, Quarry, a psychological mystery centered around Finnish culture and immigration, and how its themes might inform our lives. The podcast of that show, and many more, is available at livesradioshow.com. I want to quote you again. You've described yourself as having a heart that is a migrant. Mm-hmm. And so being a migrant isn't the same necessarily as being a pilgrim, but I feel like we can see some similarities. And I'm circling back around a little bit to some of the motivations for undertaking a pilgrimage. In the spirit of that 
description you have of yourself with your heart as a migrant. Is there something within you that you identify that feels as if you are constantly in movement, exploring something, discovering something, whether it's lands outside of yourself, people outside of yourself, or something within yourself? Hmm. Wow. You ask tough questions. Um, all right. As a, as a psychologist, as a psychoanalyst, um, I believe that there's something which is I call, it's not my own phrase, the empathic imagination. And imagination, you know, is an extraordinary human capability. I may be wrong, but I can imagine how you might be feeling sitting there opposite me. Um, we are always trying to guess how others feel. And it's an incredible gift, especially and only actually if we're open to being corrected as to whether it turns out that we're wrong. But there's something about empathic imagination, meaning a, a warm, friendly, um, open receptivity to what others' experiences might be, which I think is just delightful. I mean, fundamentally, I think it's just a delightful part of being human. You know, if I can take an interest in other people, it is a form of migrating out, isn't it, to another land, going to that person's reality, the way they experience life. I think that is an incredibly delightful thing. I love listening to other people. And I love as a writer listening to what my characters may have to say and, um, and where they come from. So that's, I guess that's my main answer. Martin Buber talks about all living is meeting. Yes. And you talked about characters, for example. And I'm really curious about this idea of the human interaction that you had. So you've already mentioned a few of the people mm -hmm. that you've met mm -hmm. as part of this experience. Is there any particular or other encounters that you had with people that stand out to you now as you look back with some removal? Yes, two. One which was painful and one which was deeply moving and, and, and beautiful. Um, the painful one was arriving in a village where that day we had walked through a very tiny town which had been the site of... Um, and during World War II, a um, massive um, battle, well, tiny for that area, but massive for the scale of the village, um, between the Resistance and the Spanish Republicans who were holed up outside of, of Spain to recoup and get arms and then go back into Spain. So there was the Resistance, and there were the Republicans, and the Nazis figured it out. And they figured out that with the help of the British, they were um, caching um, armaments and so on. And so they, they came, basically, to take over the village. And um, it was a given what would happen. And so the Resistance fought them off as long as they could, just so that all the villagers could get out and the Republicans could get going back towards Spain. And then they were sent, they blew up the armaments themselves and died. And so then we arrived only, I got chills remembering this, we arrived, I don't know, hours later in this village. And this is not about, um, I want to make clear before I say this, this is not about a feeling that we had some antagonism to German tourists or to, uh, in, to any, of course, to Germans in general. But there happened to be a group of Germans and there was one German who was being very loud and sort of space-filling with his voice and so on. And his friends, who were German, were not comfortable about it. And at one point, you know, one 
men looked at me and we were sort of, he rolled his eyes. And you could see the absolute discomfort of the serving people, the French. I mean, this is a land where people know their father died, uh, their grandfather died, uncles. And, um, it, 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 and it was an insensitivity moment. And it was a reminder, history is very close to hand. And then um, we were not, the moving and beautiful moment was actually at the very end. It was our last meal in the Southwest. And we were in the capital of, of Ligere's Auch. And we were returning um, both in the, for lunch and dinner two days to the same restaurant because it was clearly kind of a wonderful local place where people came and it was a great regional food of mushrooms and things. So we were seated, seated on a banquette. And you know, in Europe, more often couples sit next to each other and look out rather than across from each other. At least that's much more common. So we were sitting next to each other and the door opened and it was literally a dark and stormy night and with that sort of sense of the rain and the wind sound coming in the door as it was opened. And a frail elderly couple came in, looked like he could be 90 years old, but also just weak. They were sort of animated, and they were seated by the staff. And the man, before he sat down, sort of greeted us and was talking very excitedly in rapid French, which we could not understand except for a word here and there. And we sort of looked interested but helpless. And then the woman clearly was trying to get him to quiet down, sit down, look at the menu. And then later, after they'd eaten for a bit, the man leaned out again and addressed us, and I asked him if he could just speak more slowly. And so he did. Well, they had literally, she, she had picked him up from the hospital hours before, and he had been in the hospital for over two months on a ventilator, a lot of the time with COVID, nearly died, lost 40 pounds. And he was so excited to be out, to be ordering a meal in a restaurant. And we talked for a bit about each other's children and so on. And we didn't really talk about his illness but it was a powerful experience. I'm not quite sure why, but it seemed the fact that that was the last deep conversation before we got the train back to Paris via Toulouse, you know, it, it, it somehow added to the sense of, it punctuated how remarkably fortunate we were to be able to go to another country and walk like this, particularly as older people. It feels from everything you're describing that the... Camino, in its own way, could be described as a particular kind of community, its own community. Yes, yes. And, and these experiences you've described are a sense of communion in some yes, ways. Yes, Does it feel like a community where you communed with others on this, this journey? It really, really does. And not only the community of the travelers, but the community of those who are hosting the travelers. Um, for example, it's, it's quite common for someone whose house is near the path and there's nothing to get out of it, there's nothing to sell, um, to put out a chair, uh, two chairs and a table and um, a, a, a carafe of water and maybe some fruit or something. Sometimes people have something to sell. It's usually pretty simple. There um, are prayers people have tacked up along the way or sayings that they like. Sometimes you see somebody's worn-out shoes. They've tied the shoelaces together and put it over the signage for the path. People on the path say to each other as a greeting, bon chemin, which is not 
bonjour, it is good, good road, good path. And, and it's, it's very particular thing you say when you're on the pilgrimage way. And the fact that you pass people, then they pass you. You come across somebody who's crying because she's having to give up her walk. She was only in her 20s, and she'd, she'd done something to hurt her leg. And so she was trying to hitch a ride on the side of the road. And we talked to her earlier when we were really tired and had our literally had our feet up on a post to try to drain the blood out of our feet. And she was very, she was feeling very well. And she was saying, you know, that she was enjoying staying with young people in Jeet de Top, dormitory style places. And then we, you know, ran into her again the next day. And here she was needing to get hitchhike home. Um, so there's really is a community and people are very cheery in the villages. I mean, I don't want to romanticize it. I don't think there's anything more good or bad about people anywhere in the world, but there's a feeling I think of the practice of hosting people who are walking. There's a kind of a respect. It's, it's nice. You use the word joy earlier. How do you characterize that? How do you describe what it was that created that sense for you? <laughs> the first answer that comes to mind right now is, please, anyone listening to this who thinks of doing this, go and do it, because I want you to help me understand what it is that is so powerful. I think there's something about the sustained activity across days to get up and keep walking. My husband, who is first-generation Dutch-American and, and quite down-to-earth, um, said it, one way to describe the whole experience is get up in the dark, put on the same dirty clothes, and keep going. And there is that level of just simplicity. Walking in a sustained way for days, you shed a lot of your habitual preoccupations. Um, you have the, it's a privilege that you can, of course. But you, so I think there's something about accumulating days of doing this. And Jim and I were sad to stop. We wanted to keep going. I was envious of those who could, were doing weeks and weeks. And we hope to go back in the spring and maybe do two weeks continuing on from that part and going into the Pyrenees a bit. We were at the point where we could begin to see the Pyrenees vaguely in the distance. So joy I, I think it's about presence. I think it's about simple appreciation for having a body and all the wonderful things your body enables you to sense and do and eat and feel and hear and a witness. Um, and then I think there's something about the sustaining of that. One day, anything you can do is great. I love walking here. I love, I love being a city walker, and Jim does too. But um, perhaps it's like any religious practice. You keep doing it, and it's different if you keep doing it. If you go to church once, um, it's a bit different than if you go to church every Sunday. And I'm not a churchgoer at this point in my life, but boy, do I respect people for whom that's a practice. And Or if you meditate, or if you walk in some mindful way every day, it could be simple. How do you think you... Meredith are a different person today than you were before taking uh, this pilgrimage on? Mm. Well, I think I feel a little braver about some of what I believe. And I think that my kind of spirituality can have such a pretentious sound, but 
oh, I'll, I'll just have to use it. I think the fundamentals of my spirituality are a sacred view of the world, that the entire world is sacred. It's not that we are at the top of a hierarchy and, and more important than um, all the other creatures and beings on this earth. And so I feel that the walk gave me a much deeper sense of how important it is to not only our well-being, but probably to our capacity for compassion and addressing serious challenges of not caring for our world if we are outside in nature and moving through the landscape and running into people and places. that. Um, so I feel uh, more convinced of the sacredness of the world, how if we disconnect from nature, we are probably going to view the world as a commodity, including our vacations. It's sort of something we get to have. Uh, and that the land is something that does stuff for us. It grows us food. Um, and so I feel that I am even clearer that the land, the air, the water is not a commodity. Um, and I want to keep walking. Um, I'm trying to slow down, which I've always tried to do, but this practice of walking for days helps you with that because when you're tired, your body slows down. And that's actually kind of a good thing. So now the challenge at home is I'm practicing to try to just move around in the space of my home more slowly, um, be more aware that someone else is in the space. It's, it's, it's not, um, I don't want to overplay it, but there's just quiet ways in which I'm just trying to bring more mindfulness to my daily life and definitely um, getting out, outside as much as I can. Oh, one other thing. Because of this feeling that is eerie, and I can't fully, of course, explain, the sense that people who have walked in the landscape before us made that place different. I do feel more curious about that and aware of that. There's just a sense of deep time that I feel more in touch with, and I feel more a sense of being in a lineage, even if it's not a lineage of people on the Shemin that there's a, a people, you know, of being a species that has evolved a long time across landscapes and in response to landscapes and been shaped by landscapes. And I think it, it puts you in a different relationship to the world. I love that you reference time. And I don't know, again, if, if you're having a different kind of dialogue with yourself and, and others in your life about time, slowing the rhythms of being a part of the natural world, being connected to people? Well, I think in my mind there's something I'm trying to work on and hope to write a little bit about, which is the connection between um, the experience of walking on, on the little bit we've done and hopefully more on the chemin and aging and vulnerability. Because I was, we were impressed that there were people of all ages walking on the chemin and including people who were much more frail than we. And you can walk a part of the Shemel. You can, you, we hope to go back as long as we're able. And when I say able, I don't mean really fit. Um, I mean, you know, that maybe we have a cane and we can go two miles and then get a ride or something. I mean, I'm not sure, but there's something about um, wanting to keep moving and trying to open out to other worlds, other places as long as we can. 
sickness and death will be a part of that journey. I mean, that is a kind of a journey, right? It's a bit of a forbidden discussion. Um, I volunteered for hospice way back on Cape Cod when we lived on Cape Cod. And, and I definitely have a sense that when I've been with people either in our own uh, family or um, when I worked with hospice or when some of my patients have died and I've known them through their deaths, that that is a very deep journey. And when you come into the presence, I mean, you probably have experienced this, someone who is dying, the time slows down around them. You are very slowed down and you feel the, it's, it's, it's like, it feels like uh, Einsteinian physics or something. You feel like the, the space is being bent and, and shifted um, by the weight of what's happening in the space. And I would like to be more available to that. I th- and because I believe that we are actually moving um, through time right in the moment, but that we can become more aware of the deeper time around us. And it, we don't have to go anywhere to do that. There's one other relationship that we've been talking about, but I haven't actually talked about, which is with your husband, Jim. Yes. I'm wondering if that changed or was influenced or informed by the experience of walking the Camino? Oh, I think he would agree with me that it has been. Um, you know, one a funny aspect of that is um, Jim is a little older than I am, and he's a, he's a very tall man. For Jim, uh, just the way he, his body is built, at times he has fallen, and it's been very distressing, of course, for him, fortunately, never hurt himself seriously. But I, because I love him, um, have become conscious of that. And so on the path, I made a practice, uh, and he wanted me to, to walk ahead of him so I wouldn't be noticing, okay, does he see that stone? Does he see that root, etc.? cetera? Um, and so there's something about noticing our capacity for anxiety about the other person because we're both putting ourselves under a certain stress and challenge by walking. And there's also, can you remain kind and calm when you're tired and cranky? And um, so there's something about, I think, becoming more sensitive both to the other person's state of being at these simple bodily levels, very profound levels, and also letting go in another way. It's paradoxical because that that person needs to have their walk their way, you know. Um, so we would agree to certain things like whoever wants to sit, to sit down and rest first, that you go with that person. Um, we love being silent and doing things together in silence. We're very, we're very fortunate that way. Um, I think also we've had a few talks about, you know, if we, whoever would lose each other first, we don't know what our life, how it'll play out, but that we can see that walking alone on the path would be a beautiful thing. And a lot of people do walk alone. And sometimes they're walking alone, remembering walking with somebody. That's been written about too in movies about it. People on the Shaman in honor of someone they've lost in their life. I think there's something about being more aware of your aloneness, how precious it is if you do have a companion, whether it's a spouse or a friend, child, and and how at the same time you, you are fundamentally alone and each step, you, it's your foot, not their foot. It's going to be your fall, not their fall, <laughs> if they fall. I want to borrow from Erling Kagi again. 
again from his book, Walking One Step at a Time. And he says, journeys of discovery are not something you start doing, but something you gradually stop doing. And so I may be biasing you here, but I wanted to ask you about your sense of purpose, how you feel about what your life is about. You've talked a lot about joy and the experience of being happy with this experience. I'm just wondering if you have clarity, if you could say, my purpose in life is, or if this is some ongoing discovery that you're uh, still journeying and exploring. I think it's more um, uh, the latter. I think uh, it's something evolving and that on the one hand, I'm, I feel a clarity about right now what my purpose is I, I, in terms of uh, it's to be close to the people I love, to be with them, and it's to write, and it's to enjoy the things I deeply enjoy, such as cooking and eating in beautiful restaurants that we have here in Omaha. I, I have a sense of immediate purpose um, and, um, in other words, the day's walk, farther out the next day and the next day and the next day, I think my purpose is to be open to not knowing and seeing what arises. You know, we have a midterm election coming up, which is a big deal for many people. And I'm a very aware between that and many um, instabilities in the world and the, inst- the you could say the inherent instability that goes with aging that some anything could happen and we would need to be light on our feet, may I say, you know, that you could actually, when you start to fall, catch yourself and redirect. So I hope that my sense of, um, my sense of purpose is a little open-ended. That is a daunting state of being, the being open, courageous enough, but also vulnerable enough to embrace the uncertainty well, you know, I think that that's happening all the time, isn't it? I mean, we are noticing, we're noticing ourselves become self-protective and, or, or we're noticing ourselves wanting to assure someone else that we're okay or, or we, are, we are feeling vulnerable about whether we are equally loved by the people we love. It could be anything, really. Will we lose our job? There's so many forms of vulnerability. You know, somebody's sick in our lives. We're sick in our lives. And I think it that courage is something that daily life requires or let's put it this way if you're if you're open to how at any moment things can change um, and that you might be thrown off balance in terms of what's expected of you yeah the courage is just trying to show up for that to not turn away to not stop walking My guest today has been Meredith Fuller. Meredith, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and sharing these experiences with us. Thank you so very much. It's lovely to talk to you. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.